And we're live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Not Another Military History Podcast. My name is Jacob, and today we're going to be picking up where we left off on the history of the Seminole Wars. So last time we went ahead and talked about just who the Seminole uh, are as a people, or what their background was, and looking a little bit into the history. And we went ahead and talked about the first Seminole War, which mostly just consisted of Andrew Jackson uh, going fucking around in Florida, out of the swamps, uh, burning a few villages, and then marching away to claim victory, all without really having done anything substantial. So it's a good thing we don't do that anymore uh, as a uh, as a nation. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and get, start getting into the aftermath of the First Seminole War. So Andrew Jackson had completed just a real political mess with his actions during the First Seminole War. Uh, just as, as a, f- a few things he did. So he executed British subjects, attacked Spanish installations, and all without uh, being at war with either of those two nations or uh, having any sort of government authorization. So particularly the U.S. government was worried about British retaliation, being that you know, they're pre- still a pretty powerful country at this time. Uh, now, moreover, if the men were... So, so initially, Andrew Jackson argued that you know he justified... Uh, executing these British subjects by saying that they were enemy combatants. But of course, that would beg the question, if they were enemy combatants, shouldn't they have been received as prisoners of war instead of just straight up executed? So one would argue. So now, luckily for uh, the U.S., so the British cared a lot more about the wealth gained from U.S. trade than the lives of their own subjects. So after a few protests and a little bit of time, the matter was dropped by them. Now, the Spanish also protested the American actions and negotiations with John Quincy Adams of future Florida were suspended for a bit, but the Spanish also couldn't afford a war with the United States. His actions didn't really amount to much either. Uh, Jackson's actions also brought up fears of a military coup, uh, but he was still very popular and was a hero in the eyes of most the rest of the country, largely. He was a very big uh, populist figure. Of course, he was famous. One of the things he was famous for was he went ahead and expanded voting rights for poor whites. You know, he went ahead and got rid of some of the property qualifications that were previously required for voting. So, uh, of course, you know, Native Americans or slaves, of course, still couldn't vote. But um, but he was very popular among huge segments of the population for that. Uh, so, on, although he was very popular with large sets in the country, uh, Congress largely did not feel the same way. Jackson had many enemies who were not willing to just simply let the matter go. There were a lot of uh, conservative Whigs and conservative Democrats who were very much opposed to Jackson and thought, you know, all oh, this guy's clearly, you know, like styling himself as some kind of a Caesar or Cromwell or Napoleon. And we want to try to invade that or avoid that. I mean, remember, this is only, you know, shortly after the American Revolution, you know, so like the, the idea of a tyrannical government is still very fresh in people's minds. So, uh, now, his actions also divided the Democratic Party. The more conservative wing viewed him as a renegade and his actions as reprehensible, whereas the more populist, a southern wing, and remember, Jackson himself was a southerner from Tennessee, and so he is primarily fighting or advocating for the interests of southern slaveholders and some of the farmers. So a lot of the, um, a lot of the southerners in the Democratic Party hailed him as a hero. So I'm going to go ahead and read you a quote from Senator Alexander Smith from Virginia. So... Uh, quote, his name will descend to future times as a stream of light, such as the man whom it is proposed to dishonor. Let me assure you, sir, that the American people will not be pleased to see their great defender, their great avenger, sacrificed. Which, I mean, dude, just, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to just ride the guy's deck, I mean, just, you know, at least buy him dinner first, like, lord. But, uh, so, now, Jackson would face consequences, though. So, 
1819, the nation faced a massive financial crisis, so Congress decided to downsize the military, and Jackson was picked as one of the two generals that would be cut. So he was forced into retirement at this time. Uh, So on February 22nd as well, the United States uh, managed to acquire Florida from Spain. In exchange uh, for Florida, the United States would take on $5 million in claims that American citizens held against Spain, and also agree that Texas was not part of the Louisiana Purchase, as had been previously argued by some you know, of the government officials in America. Uh, moreover, all inhabitants of Florida were given full rights as American citizens, of course, except for Seminoles and escaped slaves. Uh, Jackson was appointed as military governor of the territory in March of 1821, and he immediately got into fights with the Spanish. So most of them were verbal this time, except for when he did arrest the former governor over not delivering documents in time. <laughs> because if there's one thing that Andrew Jackson loves, he just loves arresting people over just really stupid, paltry things. Now, Jackson, of course, wouldn't stay long, though, as he would resign his position and return to Tennessee in September. So now it would be a long time before Florida would have a sizable population and sizable infrastructure. So Florida was a very large territory with few roads in a thick forested terrain. Uh, at this time, it had very few large towns. It was mostly underdeveloped. Uh, the climate was also very terrible, uh, terribly hot and muggy. So it wasn't really all that great for farming either. So uh, the chief obstacle for a white settlement was, of course, the presence of the Seminoles who occupied the best farming land in the territory. So uh, the U.S. went ahead and appointed an agent named Pinieres to open up a line of communication with the Seminoles. So as a fresh, as a Frenchman, excuse me, he spoke very little English, and although he did claim to live among the Indians in Arkansas for several years, others were not so impressed. So Captain John R. Bell, who was the provincial secretary for East Florida, wrote about Pinieres, quote, Sub-agent is useless, and so would any foreigner who is totally unacquainted with the Indian character and the liberal policy of the government towards them. So, which, I, I love the, the, the bluntness that he's speaking about him. He's just, he's just a completely fucking useless. Like, and you, you also have to remember, you know, like, you know, that all of these Indian tribes are going to be very different. They're all going to have their own unique traits and their own unique culture. So just because you've worked among the Indians in Arkansas, I mean, they could be completely different from the Seminole living in Florida. And I'm sure they were different in a lot of different ways. So now the Seminole attempted to open a dialogue with Jackson using two friendly whites. And what do you guys think happened? Yep. Jackson immediately had them arrested, of course. So now in Jackson's opinion, the only solution to the Seminole issue was just to ship the Seminoles out of the territory. So, in late 1821, Jackson met with Neomathla and two other chiefs and told Calhoun that Seminoles were pleased to know that land was set aside, and Calhoun, of course, being the Secretary of War this time. So, the Seminoles were pleased to know that land was set aside for them and that they were under the protection of the federal government. So, before further negotiations could be, take place, however, the white delegation fell apart. So, uh, Jackson, of course, would end up resigning, Bella was court-martialed, and Pinieres died of yellow fever. So, uh, yeah, just... All fucking, like, taken out at once. Now, meanwhile, there was uh, poor communication due to disease, uh, geography, lack of equipment, lack of development, and bureaucratic red tape play the governing of the, of the state, or rather territory at this time, would become a state until 1845, and U.S. relations with the Seminole. So, in July of 1822, two Seminole representatives, John Blunt and Tuskegee showed up at Governor Duval's uh, residence, who was the governor of Florida at this time, 
and demanded that negotiations begin anew. So nothing had been done since November, and they really just wanted to know where they were going to live, which is, is not unreasonable. So Duvall told them that the, quote, great white father, which was a term that was often, you know, used by um, sometimes Native Americans and sometimes just, you know, people, communi- white people communicating with Native Americans. So Duvall told them that the great white father was busy in Washington. He uh, also offered uh, a date three months later for negotiations. Now, in the meantime, he told them to keep the peace and to turn over Indians who had recently murdered two whites along the Suwannee River. And he also offered to pay them if they turned in the runaway slaves that they had in the midst as well. Because this is obviously going to be a big concern for, because of course, you know, the people that are going to be populating Florida, moving to Florida territory are going to be Southern whites, you know, from places like Georgia and, you know, South Carolina and, you know, whatnot. And so they don't want to live in a territory that has, you know, any perceived risk of there being a slave rebellion. And to the whites, any blacks who were armed, essentially, which many were in the Seminole myths, were a huge risk for any sort of slave rebellion. So, uh, now, shortly thereafter, Duval decided to leave for Kentucky, and he also left his secretary, Walton, in charge of the colony. So now Duval didn't leave Walton with any instructions for proceeding with the negotiations, and so with that combined with lack of any effective communication from Washington, led to Walton calling off the November 20th talks. Now, Walton's messenger to the Seminoles didn't even arrive in time, and so the Indian chief stayed in the city of St. Mark's for three days, waiting for any sort of negotiations to begin. And when those negotiations did begin, they left in disappointment. So this is just a, a great start to uh, communication with the Seminole. Now, uh, fast forward to 1823, the government finally came to a decision as to what to do with Seminole living in Florida. So they agreed to set up a reservation in such a Florida for them and planned to tell the Seminoles of their plan on November 6, 1823. So the treaty read that Seminole were to relinquish all claims for Florida except for that land that lay within the boundaries of a 4 million acre reservation in the central part of the territory. And uh, once they were in this reservation, they would be under the protection of the U.S. government. So as for the boundaries of of this reservation, the northern boundary lay just north of present-day Ocala and extended to lower limits of Tampa Bay. Now the east and west boundaries of the reservation were never less than 20 miles away from the coast, in order to keep them from being influenced by foreign agents. There was always a worry that, you know, you know, the British or Spanish traders were going to start giving them guns and were going to try and stir them up again. So they wanted to try and avoid that from happening. Now, in exchange, the government promised to distribute farm equipment, cattle, hogs, and pay them $5,000 a year for 20 years. Uh, they also promised to prevent white settlement within the reservation, as well as compensate the Seminoles for their loss in travel and provide rations for one year. And uh, the government also agreed to provide an Indian agent, an interpreter, a school, and a blacksmith for 20 years. Uh, the Seminole were also required to allow the construction of roads within the reservation and agreed to return any runaway slaves they found within the reservation. Now, this is only a, a temporary solution. I definitely want to make that clear. I mean, both sides knew that white settlement was unstoppable. I mean, the government always tried to keep people from settling there, but realistically, it was just too... Federal government at this time was just too small to keep, you know, white settlers from really, from really settling in the reservation if they really wanted to. So, uh, yeah, both sides knew the white settlement was unstoppable, reservation or not, and it was only really meant to buy time until a permanent solution could be addressed. Uh, now, despite the fact that they believed that they were the rightful owners of the entire Florida territory, the Seminole were, of course, in no position to resist, so they accepted the treaty. So, uh, although they did accept the treaty, many Seminole were still unhappy with the treaty that was forced on them and refused to leave for the reservation. So, in order to show that they meant business, the U.S. sent troops to Tampa Bay, uh, but still many Seminole stayed where they were. Uh, 
So uh, many Seminole were holding out for renegotiation of the treaty while they stayed put. Uh, white squatters also began to move in on the territory, increasing the chances of conflict breaking out. So fast forward to July 1824, it appeared that warfare might break out again. So Duval met with Niamathle and 300 of his warriors at his village. So Duval gave the Seminole, quote, a talk that made a considerable pressure on them and appointed uh, Tukos Imathla, chief of the tribes, going to the southern part of the reservation. Uh, he also set up a new deadline for when all the Seminole would have to be the reservation, and that deadline was October 1st, 1824. So he's really not giving them a lot of time. I mean, you've got several thousand Seminoles there, and he's only given them a, like, a few months to go ahead and move into the new reservation. So, of course, despite the issues that come with moving an entire people in only a few months, by 1826, most Seminoles were actually on the reservation. Uh, now, all, the move did end up leaving thousands of Seminoles starving and destitute, and it would take them time to, of course, sow new fields and the reservation in the meantime. So, uh, President Adams' administration debated whether or not to defeat the Seminoles, while Congressman Joseph M. White, Florida's representative, wished to remove them entirely. Uh, Colonel Gadsden, who negotiated the treaty, thought the Seminole had become too dependent on rations and thought it best to send them west of the Mississippi. <laughs> you, which you got to love this logic. They're like, hey, we're going to go ahead and move you away from all of your hunting grounds, all of your food, you know, all of your farms in just a, f- a few months. And then like only like less than a few months later, they're just like, oh, they're too dependent on rations. So it's like, yeah, because you took away their fucking food, <laughs> you assholes. Like, Lord, you, you got to... You gotta love the logic here. So uh, now uh, the Seminole, in response, uh, the Seminole chiefs met with the government of Washington, and the U.S. government agreed to temporarily extend the reservation boundary. But otherwise, the Seminoles were told that enough time had passed, and that they were expected to care for themselves at this point. Uh, now they're also reminded to, of course, return and run away slaves in their territory. And it was suggested that they head west and join the Creeks. So I didn't mention this last episode, but because a lot of the Seminole originally came, a, a, a solid proportion of the Seminole were kind of a splinter group off of the Creek Nation. And then they moved from, you know, Georgia and Alabama into Florida. And uh, because of that, they had a very fierce animosity towards the Creeks. I mean, they hated the Creeks, the Creeks hated them. But because of this knowledge that at one point they were a part of the Creek Nation, it's kind of a through line you'll see throughout this series that the U.S. government keeps on trying to insist that there really are just Creeks, you know? And then so it'll be like, oh, you could just move out west and settle where the Creeks are. And someone's like, but we hate them. And they hate us. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. You'll, you'll, you'll get along with them just fine. And like, no, you, you don't understand. Like, we're not Creeks. Like we've we've gone to a war with them we've like had raids against them like it's not going to go well for us if we go ahead and just move over to this area where the majority of the people are creek and so that's something that's going to come up again and again throughout this series is just the the inability to the u.s government to realize the seminole are not in fact the creek so uh anyways uh, john hicks of the seminole replied that they weren't satisfied with the boundary extension and that they expected to remain in the land they had held permanently and that they were not going to leave. He also asserted the Seminole's right claim, uh, rightful claim to all of Florida, saying, quote, We have heard that the Spanish have sold this country to the Americans. This they had no right to do. The land was not there, but belong the land was not theirs, excuse me, but belonged to the Seminoles. So he's saying we're not going anywhere, this is our land. Uh, Seminoles uh, agreed on the subject of returning to the escaped slaves, though, but believed that they weren't bound to return slaves that escaped before the treaty was signed, which, is, of course, is going to bring up conflict, because how can you possibly 
determine whether or not a slave had escaped before or after, you know, the treaty was signed. I mean, they're out there living in the swamps of Florida. I mean, and they're, they're not going to tell you, you know, they'll, or they'll just tell you like, oh yeah, I escaped before the treaty was signed. So, you know, I'm, I'm fine. You know, it's like, how do you actually determine that? So despite these complaints, though, an uneasy peace persisted for the next five years. So Seminoles started adjusting to their new lives, but the whites, of course, still wanted them removed. Uh, and the escaped slaves in particular also remained a sticking point between the Seminoles and the whites. Uh, there are numerous disputes over ownership between slave catchers and the Seminoles. At one point, it was even suggested the Seminoles would actually be allowed to sell slaves to the agency, but this ended up getting denied. Now, uh, at this time, General Winfield Scott also replaced Gaines as commander of the Army's Western Department. And his first act was to abandon Fort King and withdraw its soldiers who were helping keep the peace. And with their absence, run-ins between whites and Seminoles were, of course, bound to increase. So, fast forward to 1828. So, in 1828, Andrew Jackson, the Seminoles' worst enemy, became president. And 1830, Congress passed the infamous Indian Removal Act. So this act dictated that all Indian tribes east of the Mississippi be forcibly relocated to Indian territory in what is now Oklahoma. Uh, The Cherokee and the Creeks tried protesting this law illegally, arguing that uh, they were sovereign nations and thus not subject to American law. So Chief Justice John Marshall knew that Jackson and Southerners would not accept this. So he kind of like took a middle ground. He ruled that they were, quote, uh, domestic dependent nations under the protection of the U.S. government. So this effectively meant that the president, i.e. Jackson, was responsible for their welfare. So Jackson's solution of protecting them from white encroachment was to move them out west. So basically Jackson is saying, like, oh, all these white people are stealing your land, so I'm just going to go ahead and kick you off of your land so they can't steal it from you anymore. So, and then, uh, so meanwhile, tensions were rising between the Seminoles and the Whites as the Seminoles floated in and out of starvation, and crimes like cattle thievery continued to fuel disputes. Uh, all the while, their Indian agent, a man named John Fagan, uh, also tried to convince them to head west. So it's not it's not the best when you the guy who's supposed to be kind of like your advocate, essentially, is telling you to like fuck off and get off your land. So, uh, in the spring of 1832, Fagan met with the Seminoles to discuss removal. So, Fagan also demanded that they rejoin the creek and hand over the runaway slaves. And the Seminoles were initially resistant to all of these demands. So, um, now, if the land was found suitable out west, the Seminole would agree to move there. And in, in exchange, the government was to pay the Seminoles uh, $15,700. Now, in addition, the U.S. would also extend the annuities from the original Moultrie Creek Treaty, um, for, for 10 years, that was the original treaty we talked about earlier. I forgot to mention its name was the Moultrie Creek Treaty. Uh, so they went ahead and agreed to extend the annuities from the original treaty. And additional $3,000 uh, would be paid for 15 years as well. Uh, moreover, their cattle would be acquired and replaced once they got to Arkansas. And the moving expenses would be paid. And in addition, every individual would receive one blanket and one frock, too, for the uh, colder Arkansas weather. So, in the spring of 1834, the Seminole delegation visited their proposed new reservation in Arkansas with Fagan, and they initially found it to their liking. So, it appeared uh, to the U.S. that the Seminole were all going to move there. Now, when the chiefs returned to Florida, however, they sung a different tune. So, the delegation either denied signing the agreement or stated that they were forced to. Now, moreover, they stated that they did not have the authority to sign it for the whole Seminole nation, and that they were only supposed to report back to the chiefs, uh, who would then vote on it. So uh, one particular sticking point in this treaty was the word they within the agreement. So the quote from the treaty reads, uh, quote, 
The Seminole Indians are willing that their confidential chiefs should be sent to examine the country, and should they be satisfied, the articles of the compact and agreement shall be binding on the respective parties. So just who was they in the situation? Uh, to the U.S., it was the chief Seminoles, it was the Seminole people. So basically, the Seminole is arguing that, like, hey, our chiefs are supposed to go ahead and take a look at this land and then go ahead and report back to the Seminole people in Florida. And the people are going to decide that if they like it, then they're going to go ahead and move out to Arkansas. Whereas the U.S. is deciding that they means the Seminole chiefs. They're basically saying that the Seminole chiefs are going to decide for the entire Seminole people. If they go out to Arkansas, if they like it and they think it's great, then they've effectively decided for all the Seminole in Florida that they're going to move out there. So, um, so yeah, just you know, big philosophical differences here. So uh, now there was also a lot of misunderstanding due to the lack of good interpreters. Uh, the interpreters the Seminoles used were Abraham and, Kud- and Kudjo, two blacks who uh, themselves were illiterate and only knew the language of the plantation. So it's, it's not going to lead to a lot of um, mutual understanding. Uh, now to the Seminoles, any person who was... Uh, now there also was the um, kind of the stipulation as well of... Of, uh, of slavery as well. So to the Seminoles, any person who was mixed was, quote, Indian, whereas the whites believed that any person who had a drop of black blood, with black blood, excuse me, was uh, eligible for slavery. So if you were a, a mixed Seminole, you, you know, you had a, a, you know, a black father and you had a Seminole mother, uh, to Seminole, that person was free and Indian, whereas to the United States, that person would have been eligible for slavery. So, of course, that's also going to cause a lot of conflict as well. Now, um, so the Seminoles started dragging their feet on the issue, and uh, but despite this fact, Washington believed that they would be removed by 1835, even though uh, they had until 1837 to actually relocate under the terms of the new treaty. So uh, in 1834, former General and Congressman Wiley Thompson took over as agent for the Seminoles. In October, he gathered them at Fort King to discuss removal. So the Seminole told him in no uncertain terms uh, that they uh, were not moving, uh, they felt that they weren't bound by the treaties at Payne's Landing uh, or Fort Gibson, and stated that the Treaty of Fort Moultrie had given them ownership of the reservation for 20 years. Uh, of course, Thompson did not like their tone and asked for more troops from Washington in response. Now, meanwhile, uh, Osceola, who was a young, charismatic chief, who was kind of the firebrand of the Seminoles, who was, you know, like advocating a very hard line against uh, removal. He started to gather more followers, representing the rise in warlike sentiment among the Seminoles. So, uh, by February 1835, the Jackson administration had made up its mind. It was dedicated uh, to removal at the cost of war. I'm going to go ahead and read a quote. All right, so this is a letter to uh, General Clinch from Secretary Cass, who uh, stating that, quote, it is impossible to yield to any wishes they may express on the subject of immigration. I fully appreciate the consequences which you predict. It is the ultimate decision of the president that they shall be removed. Let them be reasoned with, and if possible convinced, let every measure short of actual force be per- first used. Then, if necessary, let actual force be employed and their removal effected. So, basically saying that they're going to be removed one way or another. Try to avoid using force if possible, but if you need to use force, go right ahead. So, uh, Thompson also called the chiefs to a meeting and read them a letter from Jackson uh, that stated, quote, Should you refuse to remove, I have then directed the commanding officers to remove you by force. 
Uh, so the Indians took a month to respond and said again that they weren't leaving. Uh, and during this meeting, a fight almost broke out between the Chiefs and Thompson, but General Clinch intervened and kept any blood from being shed. So uh, at, during this meeting, eight Chiefs ended up agreeing to removal the first uh, of of next month, but five powerful Chiefs still refused to remove. So Thompson declared that those Chiefs should be removed from office, which was viewed as a massive intrusion from the U.S. government. Uh, later on, Thompson also banned the sale of arms and ammo to the Seminoles, which further incensed them. I'm going to go ahead and read you a quote from Osceola. So, uh, yeah, Osceola was particularly pissed off by this meeting. Uh, his quote reads, uh, quote, The white man shall not make me black. I will make the white man red with blood, and then blacken him in the sun and rain, and the buzzard shall live upon his flesh. So he's really not fucking around. <laughs> Uh, now, in June, during a meeting after Osceola became abusive towards Thompson, uh, Thompson clapped him in irons to assert his authority. And the next day, Osceola agreed to honor the Treaty of Payne's landing and bring his followers in uh, if he was let go. So Thompson agreed, hoping that this would convince other Seminoles to follow suit. Uh, shortly thereafter, a skirmish erupted when uh, seven whites assaulted five Seminoles gathering around a campfire. Uh, three of those whites were wounded, and one Indian was killed with another wounded. This meant war. Uh, an American soldier named Private Kinsley Dalton was killed en route delivering mail from Fort Brooke by Seminoles. And in response, Thompson called for more troops. So at this point, knowing that war was inevitable, some of the Seminoles decided to relocate west. One of those chiefs was Charlie Amathla. Knowing the importance of the solidarity and warfare, Osceola caught up with Amathla, captured him, and executed him on the spot. So this is truly the outbreak of the Second Seminole War. So when the war broke out, the U.S. Army was unprepared for war. They had only about 500 regulars at their disposal to police the entire country, with the rest being uh, unreliable militia. So Brigadier General Joseph Hernandez of the St. Augustine Militia had to actually ask the War Department for a loan of 500 muskets, as just one example. So Acting Governor George Walker uh, also called for 500 volunteers from Middle Florida, as well as a vessel to patrol the Navy Yard and to keep Seminole war canoes at bay. So, I'm also just going to go ahead and talk about this distinction between you have regular soldiers who are in the army and being paid and, you know, are formally trained. And you also have militia who are basically, you know, regular citizens who were called up in times of war. And, um, you know, and their training, it could very much vary. Some, I mean, sometimes it was just as parade, you know, like show training. And other times it was actually pretty decent. And you also had volunteers who were basically men who would volunteer for a campaign, receive some training, and then would sign on for maybe like a few months to a year. And then they would go ahead and, you know, peace out after that. So now at this point, the army believed that Sunil would be easily overawed by their small show of force and that any resistance would be over quickly. Doubt. So uh, the white population uh, also became completely panicked. Uh, countless families fled their homes and others became homeless when Seminole raiding parties started burning their homes. Uh, the first major engagement of the Second Seminole War was on December 18th, when Osceola ambushed a supply wagon, killing eight whites and capturing the supplies. Uh, a band of Indians led by King Philip also burned the most prosperous sugar plantation in Florida to the ground in the last week of 1835, causing its white inhabitants to flee to St. Augustine. By January 1836, Florida's sugar industry was in ruins, and that territory began to fear a slave uprising as well. So, uh, now we're going to go ahead and get into the Dade Massacre. So, uh, communications between the several forces in that territory also began to break down as the Seminole continued raiding. 
So fearing the isolated Fort King would be overrun, General Clinch decided to send two companies uh, to reinforce the outpost. Major Dade also com- uh, commanded to lead the expedition to the fort. So for four days, as the soldiers are marching, the Seminoles shattered the force, waiting for the right moment. On the fifth day, as they entered open country, the force believed that they were in the clear. So the Seminole chief in charge, McCanopy, was hesitant. His brother, Jumper, gave him an ultimatum. Are you with us or not? And McCanopy knew that the wrong decision could absolutely mean his death. So on the morning of December 18, 1835, 180 Seminole warriors hid in the tall grass along the Fort King Road. Only two days away from the fort, Major Dade's soldiers began to relax, the danger having seemed past. Uh, they, their muskets weren't loaded. They were not uh, alert. They were not in any position to actually go ahead and uh, you know, respond to an ambush. So Then, of course, the Seminoles rose and fired their first volley. Half of Dade's command fell in the first volley. The panicked white soldiers began to load weapons and take up positions behind pine trees or palmettos as the Seminole continued to pick them off. Now, once Dade got his cannon firing, the Seminole ended up retreating back into the forest. So, in this little engagement, half the soldiers were killed. Uh, the very next morning, after the Seminoles had, er- I'm sorry, the soldiers had erected a, an improvised fort, the Seminole returned, slowly advancing and shooting every white soldier. By mid-afternoon, Dade's entire command was wiped out. Uh, two men, Ransom Clark and Edwin DeCursey, survived the first encounter. The next day, they spotted a lone Seminole horseman. Uh, in response, the pair split up, but DeCursey was discovered and killed. Clark, with a broken arm, a collarbone, wounded leg, and a bullet in the lung, managed to crawl to Fort King, reaching it on New Year's Eve. The only other survivor, Joseph Sprague, arrived the next day. So, on the same day, Osceola and his band ambushed uh, Agent Thompson and Constantine Smith when they went outside of Fort King for an evening stroll to the settler's cabin. So, Thompson was shot 14 times, and Constantine was also killed. Osceola then killed everyone in the settler's cabin as well. So, it's not going super well for the U.S. Army at this point, to say the least. So... Uh, now, meanwhile, unaware of the Dade Massacre, General Clinch decided to mount an offensive, marching his 1,750 men from Fort Drain on December 29th. His intent, he intended to assault the Seminole villages along the Withlacoochee River, a Seminole stronghold. Uh, he was hoping that if he rounded up the warriors' families there, further escalation of the war would be diverted, or else the warriors might withdraw to their villages to defend their homes. So time was of the essence, though, for two-thirds of his force were full of volunteers, whose enlistments expired on New Year's Day. So Clinch reached the Withacoochee River on New Year's Eve, but he couldn't cross because they arrived at the wrong point in the river. So not wanting to risk losing two-thirds of his force right before the battle, Clinch decided to ferry his troops across in a random canoe that he just happened to find uh, on the river. So after some time, the regulars were all across with the volunteers on the other side. Now the Seminoles, in hiding them, sprung their trap and massacred the regulars on the other side. The militia... Uh, They were on the opposite side of the bank, could only stand on the other side and watch, unwilling or unable to help. Now, knowing the massacre would continue if the Seminoles weren't flushed out of their hiding place, Colonel Fanning urged General Clinch to order a bayonet charge. Clinch did so, and the Seminoles were forced back. Uh, So scattered sniper fire still plagued the regulars on the other side. Uh, Faced with the decision of either moving the militia across the river or ordering a retreat to save who was wounded, Clinch decided to retreat. So in this engagement, Clinch lost four dead and 59 wounded. Uh, Clinch was also forced to abort the offensive. The Seminoles proceeded in protecting their homes for the time being. So, the next year opened up with another ambush. On January 17th, a band of Seminoles ambushed a party of Florida volunteers at Anderson's Plantation, killing and wounding uh, four uh, 
uh, and uh, thirteen or killing four and wounding thirteen, what became known as the Battle of Dunlawton. So as the Seminole rampage continued, whites fled to the safety of forts and other government installations, uh, depopulating the entire east coast of Florida south of St. Augustine. So just all cleared out at this point. Now, the army was too short on men and supplies to do anything about it for the most part. So during a time in which a standing army was still viewed as a threat to liberty, the U.S. Army was only made up of about 7,000 effectives to police the country from Canada all the way to Texas. So as I mentioned previously, militias were lacking in discipline and equipment and were often more loyal to their state than to any national cause. Now, volunteers were even less likely, or I'm sorry, less disciplined than militias, often refused to fight on terms that weren't to their liking. So they really, the, the volunteers really viewed war more as an excuse to kind of get drunk around a campfire with their buddies while making money off the government. So just to give you an example, I'm going to read you a quote from Henry Hongsworth. Let's see. So he, he's, the, he's, the Tennessee, uh, excuse me, he's the Tennessee volunteer, Henry Hongsworth. So he went ahead and wrote about uh, his experience there. So, quote, We being the first Tennessee troops that arrived there expected a pretty warm reception, at least a treat from the citizens. Under this impression, every man who had a clean shirt put it on and arranged ourselves in the march to the very best advantage. In this order of procession, we made our entrance into Tallahassee. Big with expectation of being met by the governor and staff and hailed with exclamations of joy for our crowded populace and in the end receive a, an invitation to partake of some kind and generous hospitalities uh, offered us on the altar of gratitude by the overthankful and delighted inhabitants. What was our disappointment on penetrating the town, penetrating the town and finding ourselves unnoticed? No governor came out to meet us, no crowded populace thronged to salute us. No beautiful females from windows, porticos, and balconies with their fairy hands waving their white handkerchiefs to bid us welcome. So, yeah, it's not, not exactly what you thought. You know, you, you thought you'd be going to town and, you know, like making out with pretty girls and everything, and then you end up stomping around and getting shot by sentinels in the swamp. So, now, as news of the defeat spread north, so did panic and righteous fury. Volunteers from the southern states began to organize, and Congress appropriated $620,000 to subdue the Seminoles. Uh, Winfield Scott was also given command over the campaign and given authorization to collect whatever he needed to subdue the Seminoles. So, General Gaines also gathered a force of 1,100 men and began marching to Fort King. So, Gaines was actually supposed to go to the Mexican frontier beforehand, but he ignored orders because he thought the situation in Florida was more pressing. So, Gaines marched to Fort King in nine days, but when he arrived, Scott's promised supplies for his campaigns were, of course, not there. So, Gaines requested supplies from Fort Drain, but Clinch would only give him enough for seven days, uh, enough for him to march back to Tampa Bay. So, Gaines decided to head back uh, to Fort Brooke, but take a different route, hoping to draw the Seminoles out. He was hoping to make something of the thus wasted campaign. So, Gaines scouts took him to the exact same spot in the river where Clinch was ambushed. So, he divided his army into three columns to search for a crossing. Uh, all the while, the Seminoles were on the opposite side watching him and occasionally sniping at the soldiers. So, the next morning, a fork was found. But before the soldiers could, could cross, Lieutenant Izard was shot and fell dead, killed by a Seminole sniper. Gaines then ordered his army to pull back, and he erected a fort on the spot, naming it Fort Izard. So, Gaines estimated that he was confronted by about 1,500 Seminole warriors, the bulk of their manpower. So he hoped that he could keep the Indians attacking him, giving Clinch an opportunity to attack them on their flank, and bring an end to the war. So the Seminole were really new to siege warfare. At one point, Osceola and his band tried to set the fort on fire by burning grass, 
but a shift in the wind end up foiling their plan and keeping the fort from catching fire. So meanwhile, Gaines' men began to starve in the fort and were forced to slaughter mules and horses to sustain themselves. And by the eighth day of the siege, the men were too weak to mount an offensive uh, breakout attempt, even if they wanted to. So you might ask yourself, where's Clinch in all of this? So Clinch was caught in the middle between Scott and Gaines, who at this time actually held equal rank. So Scott had ordered Clinch to stay put at Fort Drain, while Gaines had ordered him to take to the field. Scott was also resentful of Gaines' quick actions in Florida, and he viewed his actions as upsetting his plan, so he ordered Clinch to not to cooperate with Gaines. So you gotta love these these prima donna generals just, you know, fighting with each other over this really stupid bullshit. And, you know, like, so give you a little bit of context so Winfoot Scott was one of his nicknames was old fuss and fetters he was he was the kind of general who really liked kind of pomp and circumstance and he favored you know the kind of the big bold grand strategic plans whereas Gaines was kind of more of a soldier's general you know he was like in an Indian fighter he wasn't afraid to kind of get down and dirty and you know wanted to respond quickly you know and they want to respond with initiative and you know didn't favor these you know big complicated plans like Winfield Scott was so they're very much they're opposing personalities and they hold the same rank so which is not a good you know thing to have in the military so um so yeah clinch is going to suffer th- uh you know for this so Clinch actually knew that Gaines was under siege, though, so he sent a letter to Scott requesting that he be allowed to give uh, aid to Gaines. So Clinch waited as long as he could allow himself, but then he eventually decided to leave uh, for Gaines' relief on March 5th. So Scott's permission for him to actually go ahead and um, and relieve uh, Gaines actually ended up arriving the very next day. So meanwhile, Gaines' men were starving and becoming possibly too weak to withstand a similar assault on the fort. So on the night of March 5th, John Caesar, a black Seminole, asked Gaines for a parlay. Now, although Seminole were not uh, all of one mind when it came to negotiating, Osceola stood by Caesar, so negotiations took place. Uh, the, the, next, the next morning, the two sides met, and the Seminole offered terms. They would cease hostilities if the whites allowed them to remain unmolested south of the Withlacoochee River. So Gaines replied that he did not have the authority to offer these terms, but said that he would pass it up to his superiors. So now, actually, of interesting of note, Gaines didn't actually agree with the, with the uh, policy of Indian removal, but he also must have known that Jackson would absolutely never agree to any of these terms uh, that, the, that the Seminole were offering him. So he's probably just trying to buy time. So as the negotiations were ongoing, Clitch's advance party finally arrived, and upon seeing the Seminole, immediately opened fire. The Seminole fled, and Gaines did not pursue. So Gaines held out hope for the next few days that the war would be ended through negotiation, but the Seminole did not return. He then marched his men to Fort Drain, arriving on March 11th. So uh, two days later, Winfield Scott ar- arrived at Fort Drain at last and spent what must have been a very awkward day with Gaines and Clinch. Uh, then Gaines would end up leaving <laughs> the following day. So now, in the aftermath of this whole debacle, uh, Gaines' campaign had achieved virtually nothing. Uh, he was treated as a conquering hero, though, back home. Uh, in Mobile and Tallahassee, it was announced that the war was close to an end, thanks to Gaines. Now, although Gaines may not have actually come close to end the war at all, uh, uh, it was very, very far from over. So, now after being thoroughly humiliated multiple times within the span of a few months, and the entire white population of Florida as effectively refugees, the U.S. was in not any sort of mood to negotiate. So, these defeats uh, convinced the U.S. that a much larger response was called for, so men and resources began pouring into the Florida territory. So... Now, uh, in the midst of all of this, uh, Winfield Scott came up with a new plan. So his plan was to split his army into three wings, with one marching south from Fort Drain, 
on the western side of that territory, another marching south from Volusia on the eastern side, and last traveling north from Fort Brooke at Tampa Bay. So kind of doing a pincer movement. You've got two heading south, one east, one on the west, and then one heading north from the south. So Scott was hoping that these three thrust thrusts, excuse me, would trap the Seminoles in a pincer movement and force them to surrender. So Scott himself would travel with the Western Wing, which was commanded by Clinch. Uh, General Eustace commanded the Eastern Wing, and Colonel William Lindsay would command the Southern Wing. So now timing for this campaign had to be absolutely exact. If one moved, one column moved too late or too early, the Seminole may end up escaping. Which, if you know anything about marching through any sort of difficult territory, which is going to consist of most of Florida this time, it doesn't really... Uh, <laughs> It, it doesn't really do well if you have exact timetables you have to follow when you're trudging through a swamp. So just 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 to, get, just to give you a little bit of foreshadowing here for this campaign. So at the at the uh, campaign's beginning, the southern and western wings departed their forts on schedule on March 22nd. But a similar attack caused Eustace in the east to delay his march for two days, causing him to begin on the 25th. So on the 28th, Lindsay managed to reach the settlement of Kokat. Uh, Chatty, yes, I can say these Indian names, three days after they were supposed to have gone there. So, uh, moreover, Clinch's force reached Camp Izard equally as tardy. So, Eustace also made the unfortunate discovery that there were unmapped hills in the center of Florida. I know, right? Hills in Florida? Who would have thought? And uh, blazing trails to the forest and swamps of central Florida made traveling all the more difficult. So, uh, the next morning, Clinch's men drove uh, into a place called the Cove. I'm sorry, arrived at a place called the Cove crossing the Withacuchi and hoping to drive the Seminoles south, where Lindsay would be waiting for him. So, of course, they wouldn't find the Seminoles, though. A band of them were fighting a skirmish with Eustace in the east, delaying him further. The rest of them had retreated further south, slipping away from the Americans' grasp. Eustace finally reached his appointed spot at Pelicana, or Pelicaja five days late on the 30th of March. So, at this point, supplies were running low, and, and uh, they had very little show for their efforts. Lindsay and Eustace decided to return to Fort Brooke. Now, Clinch kept heading south towards Fort Brooke, and within a few days, all three armies were together at Fort Brooke. So this is a very short-lived campaign, and Scott's campaign was a complete utter failure. The only place that they actually drove the Seminoles out of was the Cove, and they were pretty much everywhere else in Florida and not come at all close to being cowed. So this is actually the largest uh, ever campaign to occur on American soil since the War of 1812, it was a complete disaster that failed to achieve any of its objective. So Scott escapes blame for his uh, failure by placing blame on lack of preparation and inhospitable climate of Florida, of course. So uh, it should become very clear the Americans would not be able to defeat the Seminole using the conventional means that they had tried to fight the British. They would have to use different methods. And this is something that you see on throughout history is that when you're fighting an insurgency, which is essentially what this is, is there's a you know, large-scale insurgency in the Florida Territory, search and destroy missions don't really do, uh, don't really achieve much. I mean, all they can really do, you might fight a few battles here and there, but the Sentinel are faster than you, they know the land, they can go ahead and escape into the swamps, and then once you clear them out of an area, once you leave that area, I mean, there's nothing to stop them from going back and reoccupying that area again. It's much better to go ahead and clear and hold terrain in these circumstances than it is to, uh, to to kind of have these fruitless search and destroy missions. So, now, and now it's time for the Seminole to go on the offensive. So, by April 1836, the Seminole went on the warpath, besieging multiple forts within Florida. They surrounded and besieged Camp Cooper in the Cove, Fort Alabama, north of Fort Brooke, uh, and attacked an army burial party outside of Fort Barnwell near Volusia. 
Now, they even went after the army's strongest installation, Fort Drain. So Fort Drain was mostly manned by a small contingent of sick and wounded soldiers, but they held out for four days until Clinch arrived to relieve them. So this is actually enough to make Clinch resign his commission to head north. So this is something you also see as a through line throughout the Civil War, is that people, like U.S. Army generals, are just resigning left and right because they're just sick of dealing with this bullshit. They just have done with the Seminoles. I've chased them through these mosquito-ridden swamps for too long. Like, it's just... It's, it's something that's going to happen again and again. So at the end of April, the U.S. Uh, the US Army decided that Fort Alabama was not worth keeping, so they abandoned it and booby-trapped the powder magazine. So the ensuing explosion it did end up killing five Seminoles, whose uh, compatriots later ambushed the fort's garrison in revenge. So now the Army would face its worst foe yet, Florida. <laughs> So, uh, what I mean by that is, while in winter, Florida was cool and dry, uh, in the winter it was referred to as the healthy season, summer was not. Summer was referred to as the sickly season. Uh, the heat and humidity was intense and it rained almost every day, flooding much of that territory and making overland travel nearly impossible. The heat and humidity also lent itself to the proliferation of stinging insects, which spread yellow fever and malaria. So, and if you've, I've lived in Florida before, if you've... <laughs> Anybody who's ever lived in Florida could tell you during the summertime, like you don't you don't go outside. You stay inside. You stay wherever there is AC or like cold water. Like you you, you don't venture into like the woods or the swamp. And that's all these army soldiers are doing is going to the woods and swamp. So they're not having a fun time. And this is of course before the invention of vaccines for yellow fever and treatment for malaria. So it's just it's that much worse. Um, you know. As with many wars, more soldiers would die due to disease and infection than they would from actual combat during the Seminole Wars. So, um, throughout, yeah, of course, throughout the disease, uh, soldiers, I'm sorry, throughout, throughout the war, disease killed more soldiers than the Seminoles did. So, facing this onslaught of Florida terribleness combined with death and desertion, the army actually retreated, abandoning Fort King in May. They also barely managed to rescue an isolated blockhouse that had been besieged by the Seminole for many weeks. So, this retreat in the face of weather only emboldened the Seminoles, who destroyed the sugar plantation near Fort Drain. Uh, Osceola and 250 of his warriors also attacked Fort Defiance in early June, before being driven off by the fort's commander, Major Hillman, after an hour-and-a-half-long firefight. So, in mid-July, uh, Fort Drain was also closed down due to illness, with 140 of its men and 7 of its officers on the sick list. Later on, as they were transferring supplies from Fort Drain to Fort Defiance, the 200 Seminole warriors attacked the column defended by 80 soldiers who were only driven off after having inflicted multiple casualties. So in the, in the far south of Florida, at uh, Key Biscayne, even, a Seminole raiding party attacked the lighthouse. Its operator, a black slave, uh, kept them at bay for an entire day. Then the Seminole decided to burn the lighthouse. So lighthouse uh, men had two choices, get shot by a Seminole or burn alive. So the lighthouse operator decided to throw a keg of gunpowder down the scuttle, uh... <laughs> Which is just an absolute, I must say, is an absolute fucking mad lad. Just like, if I'm going down, you fuckers are going down with me. I'm, I'm here for it, man. I appreciate it. So, uh, it exploded, but miraculously, the lighthouse actually didn't fall. So, from the ground, the Sentinel kept shooting at them. They, they ended up killing the slave, but then decided that this white man was dead at some point, so they decided to leave. So, lucky for the man, the crew of the passing ship Modo heard the explosion and ended up rescuing him. So, this guy had a fucking... I don't know if, like, Lighthouse, you know, like, um, operators at this time had conventions, but this guy had some fucking stories to tell if he went to any of these Lighthouse, like, if Lighthouse conventions were a thing back then. Uh, so, by early August, Fort Drain was evacuated, and Major B.K. Pierce was sent to shut down Fort Defiance. 
While he was there, Pierce took the opportunity to fight an inconclusive battle with Osceola, who managed to escape back into the swamp. By the end of the month, Fort Defiance was shut down, leaving all of Central Florida in the hands of the Seminoles. And that is where we're going to go ahead and leave off. So if you go ahead, if you like the podcast, go ahead and look us up on uh, Patreon. Uh, if you go ahead and just submit $3 a month, you go ahead and get access to bonus content. A few bonus episodes up there already. Uh, otherwise, go ahead and look us up on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, you know, like wherever else you find your podcasts. Uh, leave reviews as well. It definitely helps with the algorithm if you guys go ahead and leave reviews. Uh, until then, uh, just just don't don't chase any Seminole in Florida. I, I would not recommend it. <laughs> All right, take care, guys. <laughs>